People don't want to die. Like the polling polling data shows that the number of the number people of happen people, to value their lives. Who knew? The number of people who don't want to die is is very high. No, no, no. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So with the plugs out of the way, for today's show, I'm so happy that we have friend of the panel, Justin Feldman, here joining us again. Justin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. It's it's always a pleasure, and it's been too long. Um, so if you're not familiar with Justin, Justin is a social epidemiologist studying inequality and state violence, and he is a health and human rights fellow at the Harvard FXB Center. And we wanted to have Justin on to talk about some of the recent work that he's been doing, um, some of which we've mentioned actually often on on the show in the past. But we thought that it would be a great opportunity to have Justin back so we could talk about the bigger picture of deaths, which is really, you know, a conversation that's inspired by a recent study that Justin co-authored with Mary T. Bassett, published in JAMA Infectious Diseases last week. And um, Justin, you and Dr. Bassett explore this really interesting counterfactual scenario, which I think you need to understand what the study is about to even get into. And because I want to get into that, I was wondering if you could run us through, you know, what what the study was looking at and why and sort of what you guys were doing here and what what came about as a result. Sure. Uh, I'll start off by saying so my co-author, Mary Bassett, is about to start a job as the New York State Health Commissioner uh, tomorrow, I think. Um, So I'm just going to put in a disclaimer, which is that everything I'm about to say in the next hour or however long (laughs) is solely my own opinion and uh, not Solely the opinion of the state of New York, entirely the Excelsior opinion. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So yeah, now that that's out of the way, she's great um, and certainly agrees to whatever I wrote in that paper, but I'm I'm going to go a little off script. Uh, Yeah. We're going to go a little beyond the basics here today, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So so to explain the paper, um, I think it, at least early in the pandemic, it was more common for people to talk about racial inequality in the toll of of the pandemic, whether it's infections, hospitalizations, or deaths. Um, it's become a little less common to talk about that, which which we can get to. Um, but what we did in this paper was took data from CDC, and they have every death in the U.S. broken down by person's gender, age, race, and educational attainment, as they call it. Um, education's not not necessarily the best measure of economic position, um, and it's not a measure of, of social class, which, if you're on the left, is something you might care more about. But it's kind of the best you have because it's it's collected on the death certificate, um, basically, the the family will tell the funeral director with with the highest level of education the deceased person had. Uh, 
So I, I took those deaths and I matched them to census data uh, just to calculate denominators to get rates. And we were able to calculate rates for every race by age, by gender, by education group in the US for all of 2020. And that allows you to look at uh, inequalities in various sorts of ways. But what, what I'll do is just kind of uh, put out a couple of the major findings, um, which are, I, I, would, I would highlight three parts. One, um, there was racial and economic inequality in combination with each other in death rates. So we saw for the first for the deaths for the first year. So yeah, that's right. So if if you look within the black population, black people with a high school degree or less died at higher rates than black people with a college degree or more. Same with white people. Same with American Indians. Same with Pacific Islanders, etc. Overall. Indigenous people, American Indians, Pacific Islanders, died at far higher rates than white people, just astronomically higher. And you have this thing that you see in a lot of other kinds of statistics where even the economically better off people of color are still doing the same or worse than the economically worst off white people. So for, for men, for instance, you had um, black men who are college educated and Latinos who are college educated and American Indian men who are college educated, they're dying at the same rates of white men with a high school degree or less. So that's that's the first point. Second point is that um, it's been for anyone who's followed this data, it's been kind of a truism that women are protected for whatever reason. Maybe it's biological, maybe it's social, maybe it's immunological, whatever. Um, w women are dying less at the same age compared to men. Um, but it's more complicated than that. And we actually saw women of color, in most cases, dying at uh, higher rates than white women. And then finally, what we did was uh, sort of a thought experiment. We said, OK, you have this group that's most privileged in the data. There are white college educated people. What if everyone in the country died instead of at the rate that they died at, what if they died at the rate of college educated white people of the same <laughs> age and gender as them? So what we'd see there is uh, for the overall population, if everyone died at that rate, there would be there would have been half as many deaths. Oh if <laughs> people of color yeah. died at that rate, there would have been 70% fewer deaths. And uh, if younger people of color, so 25 to 64 years old, died at the rate of college-educated white people, 90% of those deaths would have been averted. These are, like, frankly, fucking staggering uh, yeah. findings. And, you know, just, like, l letting them sink in is is profound. And, I mean, obviously, those are going to be the things that I think make this study. I mean, I, first of all, like, haven't seen anything remotely like this uh, you know, come out and, and even the stuff that has been published hasn't gotten a great deal of attention, but I mean, I sort of want to get your take on exactly what we kind of read into these, um, statistics, because I, you know, if I think about the explanations for, you know, deaths, deaths during the pandemic, you know, there are all kinds of social explanations that are just very convenient. They, they allow us to, you know, escape, um, uh, responsibility for things that, 
you know, various levels of government the United States could have done, but, but deliberately chose <laughs> not to do or constrained others from doing, right? Um, and that's sort of one, one thing we talk about, you know, a lot is, is the idea that, like, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Well, obviously, that ignores so much about what government could do uh, to, you know, prevent uh, the spread of disease. Um, but I think before the advent of the vaccine, there were other kinds of uh, escape hatches uh, that people try to use. And, you know, one of one of them is obviously, well, people are just like making poor choices, like making poor decisions. And I like wonder, you know, and, and even, you know, uh, like people making sort of racist sort of uh, eugenicist like arguments uh, as well. But I'm wonder I'm wondering, like what you think we should make of uh, this data, like what it tells us about the sort of the parameters on uh, in, in which the pandemic happened in the United States. Yeah. So, so I, I think we don't know for sure the causes for sure in terms of scientific certainty, I would say the exact contribution of different kinds of causes through racial and economic inequality. Um, but I think it, especially back in 2020 before, again, as you said, before vaccines were, were available or widely available, and I think there's generally three categories to look at. Um, one is differences in healthcare quality and access. So if you have people who, who for whatever reason, and there's lots of reasons, would delay getting healthcare and are coming to seek care at a later, later stage in the disease process, they're more likely to die. And, and we did see that. Um, there's the distribution of conditions that, that would are called comorbidities, so so uh, health conditions that put some people at higher risk than others, and this this issue uh, is, is given me so much grief because the first the most common pushback, and I don't I don't even know why it's pushback because I don't know what kind of argument they think we're making uh, <laughs> is. Um, basically fat phobia it it, it is say, it, implicit it, it's always the what about obesity question mm. um and not only did i i get that from facebook trolls not only did i get that from some random md emailing me late sunday night <laughs> i got it i got it from a, a journal editor oh god uh, oh my what about god. obesity and okay, so to be uh, clear these are people who are saying that all of these are people suggesting that all of the extreme disparities in mortality from COVID-19 ac across these different groups can be accounted for solely because they assume that those groups have higher obesity. Is I that, think is that's, that what, I think that's implied. And I think okay. what's also implied, I think what also is implied in the argument is if you're fat, you brought it upon yourself to be fat, and therefore we, this isn't injustice. This is um, this is just people's. Lord. It, it's a way of taking this like stark, extreme, unconscionable inequality and saying, "Oh, but these these are individuals who just so happen to make poor choices throughout their lives, and that that's why we're seeing these patterns. They're not actually the result of injustice. They're not actually the result of failures of of government to prevent the deaths." Cool. Yeah, it's the result of people not being able to control themselves, right? Well, and I think God. to us, I think this just demonstrates very clearly like 
the stuff that we talk about all the time is very pretty true, right? I mean, we, you know, we've talked for a long time about how not only is it clearly not simply now, um, you know, just to, I know that this is data from 2020, but like we have refuted for a long time the idea that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I think we refute often the idea that, you know, um, I think it, like if you if you read certain media accounts or you listen to certain politicians, you get that you could be forgiven for getting the impression that like the people who are dying of COVID are basically just like, you know, pretty exclusively like, I don't know, like anti-vax Republicans or something like that. Right. Um, and you get this you get this picture of kind of this, I don't know, like, you know, cartoonish, like MAGA only situation of like unvaccinated people who are like Republicans who are. <laughs> You know, we have like people like Leonhardt, David Leonhardt of the New York Times, who I think we'll talk about later, who Mm -hmm. write the like, you know, COVID is getting redder articles, etc. And I mean, you know, we don't have data from from this year yet, but I think it's pretty clear that it would take a monumental effort to change to significantly have changed these disparities this year versus last year, especially considering how Mm -hmm. terrible our uh, responses continued to be. And I think that... um, one reason I want to bring this up is because I remember in May, you mentioned something which I then repeated on the show, actually, which is the the statistic that of uh, like non-Hispanic white college educated people under the age, like people with a bachelor's degree or higher under the age of 65, fewer than 5,000 people had died uh, of COVID, like according to this data available on the CDC. And I remember saying that on the show. Um, that fewer than 5,000 people, like that of all of the deaths, um, I think it was what through until March through, through, I think it's uh, January 31st, 2021, okay, yeah. um, that of all the deaths through January 1st, 2021, under 5,000 of the deaths were under 65 white college educated people. Um, you know, people of a very specific, obviously, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't like distill class exactly, but like people who tend mm-hmm. to be of a certain class position and, I remember saying that and people being like, what, like you must've misspoken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like people be, being like indignant, like we no, got a lot there's, of emails, there's no yeah. way, like show me the statistic. And I sent them the, the same thing that you were citing, which was this. Yep, in, yep. And this if I recall, you CDC have a lot of incredulous link. replies who were like, and, show me these oh, yeah. data. And you're like, it's here. Yeah. And, it's all yeah. right here. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to be clear, sorry, I just actually want to say these cause I do find them staggering. And then again, I promise I want to hear more about like what you think the takeaways are, but like, so in that in that um, list of in in the data set that you that I believe is that the same data set that you were citing for this? It's a similar uh, similar one, but a, a little bit different. Um, gotcha. But very similar data. Okay, but so in this in this uh, other data set then um, that was showing data until sorry, I think I misspoke earlier. January thirtieth, not thirty first, uh, twenty twenty one. So through January thirtieth, twenty twenty one, the number of uh, white female, uh, white, and I'm going to use notwithstanding the limits of like the binary identifications that are in the, that we have to work. I'm just quoting what the data set says. So <laughs> white female bachelor's degree or more, uh, from 18 to 49 years old, 271 deaths, white female bachelor's degree or more 50 to 64, 1,241 deaths, white male bachelor's degree or more 18 to 49 years, 389 deaths and white male bachelor's degree or more 50 to 64 years old, uh, 2,326 deaths. So altogether, that's not even just under 5,000. That is 4,227, meaning that like to even get to 5,000, you would have to, like you can't do that with a rounding error or anything. You know what I mean? It's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. So 
let me i will i'll, I'll go back a tiny bit in sure. order to go forward <laughs> which is to say um the it's there's growing evidence in in my view and in the literature i cited in the study and some newer literature that the main thing driving the inequality the racial inequality in in death rates is not maybe not surprisingly for for you all and your listenership but surprising for some people out there differences in who is getting in, exposed and infected in the first place right and we don't have we actually don't have good nationally representative data by race of who has been infected um but there have been some studies in particular geographic locations some are countywide some are statewide and the, those studies that use random samples show sometimes five sometimes tenfold higher infection rates so they're looking at previous infection through antibodies um it's, uh, it's called a sero survey sero prevalence and yeah so black people and latinos and, and they often don't have enough sample for for other groups uh often have many many times higher uh rates of infection and I think that's why we're seeing inequalities that are much larger than for other major causes of death in typical years. Um, so the death due to heart disease, there are racial inequalities, but they're smaller. Many kinds of cancer, racial inequalities, but they're smaller. These are uh, much larger. Uh, so they're, they're driven by huge differences in exposure. And that exposure is probably driven by differences in household crowding, multi-generational households you can think about the connection between wealth and home ownership and race um, and occupation who is working in person who's working in dangerous jobs that are unregulated there is no osha regulation covering general industry and not any regulation in many states at the state level um, so yeah and that is still happening we're now that was 2020 data we're now in 2021 I the study got released about uh, last week, and I got curious: How has racial inequality changed uh, during the period of Delta and beyond? Mm. Um, we we kind of stopped hearing about these uh, issues of racial inequality in media. There used to yeah. be, you know, feature stories fairly regularly uh, in the beginning. Um, and the narrative has really shifted to the like red state, blue state. Are you Republican? Mm -hmm. Are you right. vaccinated? What do you Being believe? Right. Uh, sort of implying that it's like conservative white people mostly who are dying now. Yeah, definitely. Um, not not sort of like <laughs> very aggressively yeah. implying yeah. that like the uh, wealthy white boat owner who like whose boat sank in the Trump parade in Texas two years ago <laughs> is the person who is dying. And well, it's just and, a multiple of him. And if not that person, then it's someone you know, who whoever, was already yeah. sick. Yeah, who exactly. had a yeah, comorbidity yeah. or something. Right, yeah. right. Or who brought it upon themselves somehow. Yeah. So I, I looked, um, I got curious, and there is actually, um, CDC publishes a data set that is weekly COVID deaths in the U.S. by race and by age. Um, so I took a quick look at that to see what was happening. And I looked from August 1st this year to mid-November of this year, so just recently. And what do you know, the mortality rate for Black and Latino people 
is about 30% higher than for white people okay. after adjusting for age differences. And for American Indians is 60% higher than for white people. And um, all these groups are vaccinated at roughly the same rates, except American Indians are vaccinated at higher rates than white people. So this is not explained by vaccination. This is likely explained again by continued extreme differences in who's being exposed to the virus because of their living and working conditions. And, and that's important. I, I think that's an important distinction to make because I think very early on in the pandemic, the narrative about race and ethnicity that you heard, I mean, I think especially on the right, but also I would say among, you know, your substack contrarians uh, <laughs> was that, oh, it's it's actually you can't not look at uh, these the underlying uh, conditions that that's actually what's what's the 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 the, the differential uh, factor that's what explains it. Um, now, obviously, um, it, it's it's not as if like a a legacy of decisions that led to differences in in you know ra- racial disparities and chronic health conditions like doesn't account for anything. But obviously, the the two things that seem to be more proximal to uh, death are one, do you get exposed to a disease? And two, what happens in the clinical uh, environment uh, when you're being treated uh, for that disease? Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, like, so your sense is it's less about what happens in, you know, treatment and sort of the, the, the clinical space as opposed to whether or not you get infected in the first place. Is that, you know, yeah, I, is I that think- more or less right? I think there are con- con- contributions from each of these. So from yeah, yeah, from people's prior health status, from healthcare quality and access, and from exposure. I think if you were to have a really good data set and do an analysis, my guess is that the largest contributor is differences in exposure, because there's nothing else that could account for such extreme differences, in my view. And I don't think. Um, I do think like the how long it takes for you to get treatment is is potentially one major question. Um, and there's certainly, you know, differences in healthcare facility quality and medical discrimination. But I think those account uh, for relatively smaller shares. Well, I, I want to press on that a little bit because I think maybe one of the most interesting findings in the paper is this um, this intersection type finding where you know, what you show is that ultimately when you look at, you know, now if we're treating college attainment as socioeconomic status, which is like the standard sort of thing to do in the literature. Well, and it's the closest um, that they collect, right? It's the, yeah. exactly. It's the closest that they collect on like a death certificate right. that, that, uh, you know, being a black male who has a BA, you are more likely to, to die from COVID than, uh, white male with with uh, only a high school degree is that is that they're, they're, they're dying at about the same rates or they, at they about the same rate now um i would guess that the the exposure point there is that the like a college degree for like a black male it doesn't necessarily buy you entry into professions in the same way that it does for a, co- a college degree for like a white male is that more or less your point because in other words you are still having to 
to be in occupations where there's more exposure, less sort of discretion uh, as a worker uh, to opt out of uh, situations where you might have to be exposed? Is this is it more or less an occupational story? I think it's occupation. I think it's also housing. And I think it's also social networks and segregation of social networks. So there are, we know that there are fewer returns on investment, if you view it like that, for college education uh, for black people versus white, especially black men versus white men in terms of the kinds of jobs you can get. Um, so I would guess that all else equal, a black person with a college degree has higher COVID exposure on the job on average than a white person with a college degree. Um, But then there are extreme differences in housing. Basically, white people of all education levels are more likely to have adequate housing, uncrowded housing, not uh, single generation housing or, or housing that doesn't have an older generation living in it. So I think that's a major reason. And that really, you know, you can't, if you if you're a black person with a college degree, uh, it's very difficult to to get a house if you don't have generational wealth. Right. And then on, on top of that, climbing climbing the socioeconomic ladder is a much more precarious thing for for black people and other people of color. Um, and it's likely that you your family is sort of of, of mixed socioeconomic position, um, and that your your friends, your family networks have more exposure. So if I'm, you know, a, a white graduate educated, uh, graduate level educated person, uh, most of my friends and family are going to have a pretty high level of education, pretty low level of exposure uh, as, as a result in their workplace or in, in their home. Um, so it's not just my risk, it's my risk in relation to my social networks and not just the social networks that are in the workplace or, or in the home. Well, and I think there's also this idea that the, sort of the more education you can attain, the more you can overcome various like health disparities or or negative health outcomes when you're trying to access care. But I think the other thing that became kind of obvious to me is that, you know, in terms of uh, the the delay in care, whether it comes through someone not being able to get time off of work, um, you know, which I think also definitely relates to exposure because the longer it takes someone to get care or the longer it takes for someone to be believed by a provider, for example, is going to like prolong the period that they will be um, in theory able to like spread the virus before they might know that they need to shelter in place or stay yeah. home from work. Um, you know, I, I think... Yeah you know, that the, the sort of temporal shift that occurs in care along racial lines is one of the things that people work really hard in the United States to invisibilize. They try really hard to, um, you know, create this idea that if you just work hard enough, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can go to college, get that education, get the good health care and like transcend your station in life or whatever the fuck, you know. But but ultimately what it seems like looking at at this study that you did also, you know, the sense I get is like, wow, you know, I don't know if that really bears out to be true. Right. Like, and I don't think that necessarily in the context of COVID, it's bearing out to be true that, you know, through, um, you know, taking on all this debt to get a college education, that there's an opportunity for individuals to individually improve their health, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I I think despite um, educational attainment, not being a great measure of, uh, things like how much money you have, how much wealth you have, your glass position. Right. It's good for that exact reason. It kind of pushes against this uh, education meritocracy uh, 
belief system that's ingrained in the U.S. Yeah, it's sort of like the virtue of a bad measure is that it allows you to see exactly what that, uh, you know, how little that meritocratic uh, notch uh, actually does. And I mean, I wonder if we could talk about maybe um, this this idea right now of COVID deaths happening in this sort of nebulous, vulnerable population, right, which, as we've been talking about, is being described as like, you know, the unvaccinated or people with pre-existing conditions or comorbidities or people with, you know, stigmatizing identity characteristics like being um, overweight or being um, someone who lives in a congregate facility, for example. Right. But I, I feel like what what we really are struggling over right now is that so much of it is is about marking the vulnerable and sort of then marking the rest of the population as not vulnerable in order to, I think, inspire the confidence needed for people to really go against, I think, what appears to be a very dangerous situation for a lot of people. I have not talked to a lot of people who are um, comfortable being back in the office and yet everyone is back in the office, right? Everybody is working in person. Many people never stopped working in person. And, um, you know, what I I feel like is really important about, in particular, this hypothetical sort of counterfactual scenario that you guys entertain here, which, you know, is that it does remind us, right, that every single death has been a policy choice, has been a, a... opportunity for us to do better and we have not only neglected to do anything to try and mitigate these deaths or or reduce the way that covid is spreading and the the people that covid is affecting more than others you know we we've also completely like written out any of the reasoning as to why this could be happening right it's just sort of treated like this like phenomenological like active nature like people are being like struck down left and right by god yeah i mean so i i just looked at the new york times count of how many people have died of covid since the beginning of the pandemic they're reporting 777,000 deaths the cdc says the actual figure of COVID deaths is generally 30% higher than reported right. because of underreporting. So right. we have actually, if that's true, we've crossed the threshold of 1 million deaths right. since the pandemic started in the last week or so. Um, and I don't think people see this. And I also don't think things are going to get better anytime soon. And We've had the all these kinds of narratives about why this is actually okay and doing anything more than the little bits we're doing, which are mostly not policy. They're mostly individual behavioral choices when people even have the power to make a choice. Um, why, why it's impossible to do more and impossible to do better. At the end of the day, I think the question of who is dying is one of the key uh, reasons for the incredibly poor policy choices um and you know it's it's people it's younger people of color it's older people it's disabled people who are dying and you know if if someone dies uh or someone gets very sick and someone has long and persisting persisting symptoms well they should have been vaccinated if they were vaccinated well, you know, they had certain high-risk conditions. What are you going to do? We have to go on and live our lives. Um, meanwhile, you know, people don't want to die. 
Like the polling polling data shows that the number of the number people of happen people, to value their lives. Who knew? The number of people who don't want to die is is very high. No, the, no, nope. Shocker. The, you know, Democrats they should run on that. They should now run wait a minute, Justin. Wait a minute. People seem to accept. People seem to accept very low wages for very risky jobs. Isn't that a revealed preference of their actual like desire to die? So people don't value their Sorry, lives. Being an economist here, no, but we, Justin, let's no, but, but let, let's talk a little bit about your profession. Uh, let's yeah. let's talk about the people who who claim to speak for uh, protecting population health. I mean, um, you know. Uh, discuss <laughs> no, I just, you know, I'm just curious because it's I think the thing that I've observed very casually um, and and with much I think just disdain is that uh, like public health epidemiologists if they had a soul to sell it seems like they sold it um, and I'm just like curious like where that debate is sort of within you know you know, obviously you, you guys published this in, in JAMA infectious diseases. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, just like, so like, uh, mm. is, is there any woodshedding going on now, like within your field or is it just like the, the, you know, the, uh, criminally negligent and, or like culpable, uh, you know, people who are just like excusing this sort of thing or pushing it under the rug, have they sort of remained, you know, in, in control? I mean, actually, if I could add to that, really yeah. quick um because i think you what you're asking phil dovetails um entirely with what was kind of on my mind too which is justin you i think one of the reasons to do to dedicate really you know most of an episode to this conversation and to this study for example is it really shows in a very pure way in a way that like is not demonstrated as we talked about at the top in a lot of other places how you know justin i think you mentioned like how the you know the the narrative about who is dying but also like the narrative about where we are in the pandemic is very different than uh it would otherwise appear and i think it's very clear when you think about all the other disparities that exist within society and under racial capitalism that make it so that for the most part you know for example like david leonhardt at the new york times he doesn't fucking care about the people who are the short end of the COVID-19 pandemic right now, right? Like he doesn't, like he's not interested in like a lot of those people who are kind of, you know, setting this narrative or who are acting on, from a policy perspective, again, whether from, you know, media or, or politicians or policymakers or whatever, or uh, public health people are not necessarily interested in this, right? And I think that is especially galling. And the, re the way that I guess I'm adding to your, to what your question is, Phil, is like, I think especially in recent days seeing with Omicron variant news being all over the place and you seeing uh, sort of public health officials or public health people really um, trotted out all over the place in interviews or referenced as the basis, like as expert opinion for as the basis for policy decisions, right, are doing this very like keep calm and carry on mm -hmm. line saying, you know, there may be troubling things here, but don't panic. The last thing, like, do not, like, why would you, we haven't, we've gone, we've gotten this far not caring about the pandemic. Why would you start now? You know what I yeah. mean? Mm -hmm. um, I will read you a sentence or even a fraction of a sentence from, um, it's, I was, I was just looking at this last night. It's the Dialectical Biologist by Richard Lewontin and Richard Levins. Um, and there, it's it's a chapter kind of kind of dunking on scientists, 
but it's real. It's not really dunking on scientists. It's it's dunking on um, the commodification, or they could say commoditization of science under capitalism and the effect it has on scientists and on the practice of science. So they're kind of making fun of this idea of pragmatism that that a lot of scientists have, and they say. Being effective requires maintaining credibility. Therefore, advice must be limited to the domain of the acceptable. Mm. Um, and <laughs> and they're, talk, they're talking about, if you read it in context, the acceptable refers to like what basically what elites find acceptable, um, right. what, what politicians and maybe philanthropists and the capitalist class in general finds acceptable. So you have, I don't, I wouldn't paint the whole field any one way. I think there are internal dynamics in the field. Um, but the the voices that have risen to the top, um, mm-hmm. largely because they've been uh, they've been pushed to the top both by media, by uh, often right wing philanthropies, um, some of which uh, we've talked about on the show or, or you've talked about without me on the show. Um, <laughs> the rogues gallery. They, they've played a role in in kind of picking their experts, and we know we can name who the experts are. And I'm not I'm not even talking about the Great Barrington Declaration people. I'm talking about Monica Gandhi, Ashish yeah. Jha, mm-hmm. Emily Oster, Jennifer Nuzzo. Um, these are, and Jake I'm actually Allen. working. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Can't I'm actually worked, Gigi. I'm working I'm working on like a uh like a uh natural process uh natural language processing and content analysis study. I, I can announce it here. Um where where I wanna I wanna look, I wanna see sort of the the top who are empirically the top experts in in elite media outlets <laughs> and what what policy top preferences men. are they expressing <laughs> because we we already we already know this but no one's done it in a in a systematic way and so it's really it's a it's a half dozen people <laughs> and they they have really successfully shaped the narrative mm-hmm. and they've been successful because they are providing arguments that serve those in power um and what those in power want is to kind of just uh, ignore the pandemic, you know, we'll, we'll get everyone vaccinated. Um, but if it's going to take more than that, forget about it. Um, oh, I can't <laughs> fucking wait to read that study, even though I feel like I study its conclusions every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's about it's about having kind of like uh, not not just dunking on people, but dunking on people in in a, an objective and systematic way. <laughs> It's called science. But I mean, but this is but this is the but this is the thing, right? Is whatever. I, I think this illustrates to me a, a point that I have, you know, come to believe with increasing intensity, which is that like the professions destroy them, burn them to the ground. They don't mean anything anymore. Um, they don't any moral claim to authority they had uh, was dead uh, years ago, and uh, it should just be extinguished now um, and forever, and there has to be some way of uh, reconstructing it, because uh, if, like, it doesn't seem to me that these people uh, have anything to fear uh, from their peers, from, from, you know... They're only being rewarded. They're only being rewarded, right? And, like, if the whole, like, Mertonian... Uh, like model of like science is, is to be believed, which of course it's like this really dumb ideal type. Um, but like that, that's the sort of the premise of, of, you know, like what, how, how these professions are supposed to function uh, is if it, if it protects uh, or if there's no uh, 
like constraint uh, on on what these actors are, are able to do, or at the very least, if the things that we typically do, like uh, reviewing uh, papers, like publishing uh, additional studies and, and uh, you know, writing critiques and letters and so on, like if that ceases to have any import in the world or any impact in the world, like exactly what are these institutions supposed to be doing in the first place, right? And I, I don't know, I just, I, I get increasingly like, the only way of engaging with these people is politics, not the professions. Oh yeah. I think. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's largely right. Um, so the caveats I want to make are that there are most of the people in the field of public health are people working at your County health departments are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a public health nurses. Uh, there's all these kind of, people being worked extremely hard right now who who get no credit, um, no credit from the public, no credit from ac- academia or, or any of the kind of like better, better funded parts of public health that are publicized parts of public health. They're, they've rare, th- that workforce has rarely been educated in schools of public health. There's this extreme division in, between academic public health, which does the research, gets the funding, gets uh, gets the media accolades, um, mm-hmm. and the the actual practice of public health, I don't right. I don't think we we understand each other in the most basic of ways, and that that's that's kind of a problem. Like, the, and, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's gotten worse over time, and it's a result of how like basically. Um, schools of public health are a form of Keynesianism. Um, there's billions and billions of dollars of NIH funding that gets thrown into biomedical research. Um, and, and then we kind of ride their coattails in public health. And the purpose of that money is not to make the public healthier. The purpose of the money is to employ people in relatively high paying professional class jobs, in particular geographic areas, in ways that stimulate local economies. And like that's exactly what's happening like that. It's clear and it's not it's not serving the stated purpose, but it is serving the actual purpose, which is distributing money in particular ways. Well, and this is so important because even just talking about the study that Mm -hmm. you that we're talking about um, where to discuss why like to discuss what your findings mean and what it says about the state of the pandemic and and why certain groups of people have been the subject of just the absolute brunt of the horror of the like of the fucking plague like I think you called it on Twitter like group differentiated mass death Justin which is like so good (laughs) but like just just to talk about the reasons why that is is to you have to it is very important to understand that, especially for things like plagues, but in general, there's almost like it, it would actually be beneficial kind of if we just gave up on the idea of individual health as an idea or a thing for like personal attainment or something like that, because the idea of individuated personal health just totally betrays the fact that like all the social and environmental factors that make up health and all of the all of the like really all of the social determinants of health even just for for a, a number of other things but i'm just talking now about for instance like pathogens like uh covid-19 for example like like the the people the 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 very people that you're talking about who get these like you know cushy positions or whatever who then are like the the experts like, like ashish shah who like get you know talked to by stat news or you know brought up on cnn or or whatever what have you they there's a reason that as opposed to actually even talking about public health they for the most part don't talk about 
social determinants of health or public or, you know, any any of the social factors that lead to something like the spread of a plague. They talk about what is what are the like couple of little tricks that you should do? What are the things that you as an individual can do as like the enlightened subject who has access to CNN or whatever the fuck? What are the what are like the tips for surviving that you should follow? Right. It's so in this level, you're absolutely right, where it's like health is a commodity that you have to continually like put money in to maintain. And what this and I think what this study points to is like the health is a privilege. And obviously that's what we talk about. But right. like health is very obviously a privilege in this country. Yeah, especially what we like, you know, define to be health as being, you know, an improved ability to survive everything that's thrown at you by American capitalism. And that. You know, I think one of the reasons why I, I'm just like glad that we have you on, even if it's like seems like a weird and small thing to cover with all of the stuff that we could be talking about. It's like the question of why people are dying and who is dying is so important. And it is the question we have spent you know, collectively as a global society, the least amount of time really talking about why people are dying. There's been a lot of time spent talking about the very surface level explanations as to why people want to think that people are dying, right? But none of this has ever been in the register of like, you know, let's actually look at what's happening on the ground because the point has never been to stop it. The point has been always to like, explain it away right to bring to bring that consensus of the elites down to like the masses and impose it upon them it's not about like teaching people about healthcare or about public health or about you know how to keep themselves safe it's about you know literally just the bare simple manufacturing of consent for what has already been agreed upon you know at a at a level that most people have zero access to and no hope to ever gain access to no, ma- no matter how much educational attainment they manage to acquire in their lifetime right yeah and what's what's really worrying to me i mean a, a million deaths in the us and many millions more globally is is already worrying but I'm thinking about the next million deaths in the U.S. and yeah. the next many more million deaths globally from COVID. And I'm also thinking about climate change. And the way it's all connected to me is that um, this. So so COVID, I think uh, some of us have realized is not going to just disappear one day. <laughs> um and and there's you mean a whole it won't just like wake up tomorrow morning we're gonna wake up tomorrow morning it'll be the common cold everything will be fine yeah, just yeah. sniffles yeah just like hiv <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah i mean there was at, at one point the some of the people we were discussing earlier were writing <laughs> articles trying to put out there in the world that like okay once the pandemic gets down to the number of deaths we see annually from flu it's over. It's just normal. We'll live with it. We don't have to do anything special. Um, I think it's become apparent that we're so fl- flu in an average year in the U.S. kills something like 25, 30,000 people, yeah. uh, which itself is many of those are pre- preventable. Um, Absolutely. But the idea that we'd even get down to 30,000 deaths a year anytime soon without a lot of intervention is kind of far-fetched. Um, so now the genre of article has switched from it'll be over once we have uh, 30,000 deaths a year to 
it's basically it's over <laughs> already. Yeah. Uh, this is this is the new it's normal. Live with it, or it's, it's over for it. you, but not yeah. for oh those uh, low those the vulnerables. Yes, the vulnerables. You and, know those others. And then so climate change. Um, okay, so where where it connects for me mentally maybe not maybe not in the in the content itself is my my uh sort of disappointment with the left in the US for kind of failing to politicize uh the, the pandemic um obviously there are rare exceptions like you all and this podcast um <laughs> thank you institutionally, we appreciate it institutionally <laughs> institutionally you, you don't really see DSA, for instance, coming out with an analysis or a set of demands, you don't see Bernie or the squad or the left faction of the Democratic Party coming up, um, you know, with an like a good class analysis or a set of demands or whatever. It's it's just not happening. Um, and it's to the extent we see any commentary by people on the left, I've been disappointed by some and they've been very individualistic they've been yeah. very um like vaccine only is fine kind, kinds of framings um exactly what we see from from liberals um and my worry about climate change is that climate change is you know it's this over it's this like overarching thing we can't directly observe in our day-to-day -day lives directly but it presents itself as a series of crises and a series of crises that need mitigation and adaptation for years or decades or permanently. And each one of those crises um, will either engender a political response or it won't. So it will be ignored, which itself is political. And each of them, I could very easily imagine having exactly the same kinds of discourse around individualizing responsibility around yeah. who's who's deserving or not around like uh maybe any intervention we possibly could do is going mm -hmm. to be worse than the crisis itself mm -hmm. like this this is kind of covid covid is both um you know both something that's here to stay unfortunately and, and something that need is going to be con continual object in need of political intervention and also a blueprint that I fear is is like uh, foreshadowing a, a, f a future and, uh, that we're not politically capable of responding to. It's it's the failure of politics and the failure of political society to respond to COVID in the U.S. That's the most upsetting and disappointing to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also the if you think about the 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 metaphor uh, that sort of the left has sort of taken up for like climate change, like Green New Deal. Uh, the explicit like referent is the New Deal. And if you think about the social kind of milieu and like the categories that surrounded the, the New Deal itself, like it's it's like far more comfortable terrain, I think, for the left. Right. It's, you know, something that emerged sort of in in the shadow of an ascendant. Uh, and more and far more militant, uh, maybe uh, kind of moment uh, labor, obviously, in the shadow of like ge geopolitics and the sort of the rise of um, the uh, Soviet state. And, you know, in, in the context in which like any of this is being uh, carried forward is like a context in which the, the left is far less uh, powerful. And, and I think my my hunch like if I had to give the, to me the most, what I regard as like the most generous explanation for why the left hasn't like latched onto 
you know, the, the pandemic as, as something to really like orient itself around is that it, I, one is that it's not ascendant, um, that it is, you know, institutionally enervated in all number, all all manner of ways. And so anything is going to seem like, you know, uh, a, a heavy lift. Uh, but that also the, the way that pandemics work it, you know, it challenges a lot of the basic sort of organizational institutional kind of routines and like scripts that I think people who are on the left are like familiar with, comfortable with kind of like organizing around like workplace, um, and sort of bread and butter economic issues. Like it, it, it involves more thinking about sort of the regulatory apparatus as well, uh, which is, I think can, can be a very deeply like uncomfortable, uh, place to be. But I mean, that, that's my take on why, um, there's been such like an, I, I would call it like an allergy, uh, to talking about the pandemic, but I don't know if you have a sense of your expl- sort of social conventional explanation of like why that's the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out myself and, and you've, you've given me some, some stuff to mull over. Um, I, I would also, I, I think about a couple of things. I think about how, how infectious disease is like you, you can't have an individualistic mindset in an infectious disease scenario. It's, it's just literally doesn't make any sense. And I think the, the U S left is still very much stuck there. Um, it, it's still very, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to think about the government taking over healthcare with, uh, which, you know, serves or health insurance, which serves mm-hmm. individual people's medical needs. A lot, a lot of what the left in the U S has called for, um, in recent years has been meeting individual people's needs in an individual way uh, through the collective apparatus of the state. Uh, but still, still at the end of the day, kind of individualistic. Um, and the, the other thing, like my more charitable interpretation is how maybe different issues have needed to be uh, sort of like political consciousness needs to be developed separately on separate issues. And I remember as, you know, a college student uh, going to a college that was very sort of ecologically minded, uh, there was a lot of focus in terms of climate change about individual actions you could take to prevent climate change, how to live your life more responsibly, even veering at the most extreme ends into population control. And that all still exists, but I feel like right. it occupies a much oh, smaller ever. space. <laughs> Pretty ever present, I think. Especially the population control. Especially part. the yeah, that's yeah. the. I mean, that's a classic. You know, that's you know, hundreds um, of years at this point. Um. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say it, it's gone away, but I think it's lost its do- dominance. And I think someone is, uh, especially if you're young and on the left, I think you're probably more likely to think about Green New Deal or equally likely to think about Green New Deal as you are like, um, you know, uh, lowering your personal carbon footprint, which was invented by an oil company. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking of that tweet that uh, we passed around in the group chat last night that was like, sometimes I sit back and ponder how great America would actually be if a new COVID variant wiped out every single unvaccinated person in the U.S., leaving only the caring, educated, selfless people with common fucking sense. Yeah, I mean, it's the same bullshit. (laughs) Well, but okay, but so here's the thing. I think, you know, part of the thing that we're talking about, the you know, yes, there has not been a sufficient um even even rhetorical uh or um propagandistic response or something against like it, it like 
towards some sort of some sort of actual counter to the you know again the the field i think is very small in terms of people who are have actually been consistently for a long time calling the response for what it is and uh, i think you know i'd echo what i think be mentioned earlier which is i really appreciate your work in that this whole time basically Mm -hmm. for a very long time thank you but i think you know to some degree too just in terms of um you know i don't know like the the basics of how uh hegemony or social reproduction works like it does also i think the this the fact that things have been so consistently stuck to um the the individuated response um specifically within covid makes i think a lot of sense considering the very factors that we were just talking about the the fact that um you know within for instance like the uh, experts in public health a bunch of di- well, different a whole bunch of different types of experts uh, frankly yeah, on the, the pandemic board. across the board have reiterated the you know many of the lines that we're talking about that you know all of these um that, that support all of the terrible decisions that have been made that support things like in the united states the only solution to the pandemic that is you know certified and okay is uh that everyone get vaccinated which everyone should but then no other room for other npis on the table other non-pharmaceutical interventions on the table um or anything like that and you know frankly again to bring it back to um your study but also i'll I'll take it a little further i'll take it somewhere else after that but like to bring it back to your study like uh it's i think it's pretty unfortunate that there's so little literature out there Mm -hmm. that has made the point that you have just made like i I, does that make sense i mean i feel like the the fact that i guess where i'm going with this is one of the things too is that like this this reproduction of the sort of like lines that power is okay with already has led not only to a lot of, you know, just I think acquiescence, um, but also has led to just a dearth of really basic statistical information or availability of some really important knowledge about the pandemic. Like I right. think, for example, the, um, the, like the one example I'm using is for example, stuff that you talk about in your study, but then also to bring it to uh, what B mentioned uh, much earlier, which is another thing that we wanted to at least briefly talk to you about, but this like the discussion about breakthrough infections um, mm-hmm. and the the a couple months ago, like the one the only one in five thousand people get uh, breakthrough infection line, which you know we can talk about, which was bullshit. But then also just the fact that like we don't, you know, we do not really have good data or a good picture at the national level of where breakthrough infections are at right no exactly and like how often they result in bad outcomes or whatever i was gonna say i mean it's like it's like what i was saying earlier about invisibilization if you don't look for something if you don't provide access to look at something and if no one is willing to look for it then like that problem is not going to exist. Well, but also, okay, just in terms of this, uh, the breakthrough infection stuff, I wanted to, I saved this for your appearance, actually, Justin. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about, I have a, a clip to play, which I was thinking about playing on the last episode that we recorded, which was the uh, our, our special kind of roundup of everything that is known and unknown about the Omicron variant, which is at patreon.com slash death final pod. But um, <laughs> this is a... 
I just I'm really curious, especially since you you know wrote this whole thing about the the one in five thousand breakthrough infections um, statistic, and just in general because of your sort of field of expertise, I wondered if I could get your reaction to these comments that were made on Face the Nation by Anthony Fauci on uh, sure. November twenty eighth. <laughs> Why isn't the CDC tracking breakthrough infections? Wouldn't you be able to better answer that question if you knew? Yeah, I mean, yes, in, in, in many respects they are. One of the things that we Among really... Among healthcare workers. Yeah, about, yeah we, we need to do a lot of things. We've got to make sure we know what that means from a clinical standpoint. Because the public hears you cite information out of Israel, out of a right. foreign country. Right. Why don't we have that data collection <laughs> yeah. happening here now? We should have it. We should have. Why don't we? And, well, I, 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 I why did Why did the United States decide not to track Well, it's a very infections. complicated indication. Excuse me. It's a very complicated situation. And often the public doesn't hear yet in time things that are being collected. So there's a lot of data, clearly a lot of data that's being collected by the CDC that people don't know about yet. So we need to make sure stuff. in real stuff time you just don't we know get about. that data out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Historically, when you're not in a pandemic, you can collect data, you can analyze it, you could talk about it, and then you could look back and say, this is what we've done. But is there data being collected now in the United States about breakthrough infections yes. that the public doesn't know about? Yes, yes, yes. The CDC <laughs> is collecting data. Beyond yes. just healthcare workers, everyday people, you have an idea of what's happening with breakthrough infections? I don't have the data for you right now. That's obviously we'll have to get the CDC to get us that. Okay. Right. So is it just me or did he just say that they are in fact collecting data on breakthrough infections, but it hasn't been shared yet? <laughs> they, they actually took data on breakthrough deaths and maybe hospitalizations that was on their website. They took it off right. just, just as, just as mm -hmm. things were starting to get worse. Um, mm. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I, let, let me clarify this for, for, I mean, uh, if someone's listening to your show, I, I assume they have some background on, on this, but, but let me, let me not assume that for a second. Yeah. Just in case they know, because um, you never yeah, know. You never know. And, yeah. And, and yeah, and I, I'll try to get, you know, some not regular death panelists. This is the first episode. They might not know all the, uh, the yeah, characters yeah. Hey, yet. it's always someone's first episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so yeah. The, on an individual level, getting vaccinated is the best thing you can personally do to protect yourself from uh, severe disease, from symptomatic disease even. It's, it's good. Um, vaccination is very good at an individual level. Vaccination alone as the sole policy used <laughs> to control a pandemic at a societal level is not a good policy. <laughs> Cut his mic. Cut his mic. I'm going to need another take where you say the opposite. <laughs> so it's kind of ridiculous. So this this guy, David Leonard, and you've covered this on his show already, he, but, but Brian keeps on being used. And there's such a contradiction there. He said, in a given day, uh, only one in 5,000 vaccinated people will get infected with, with COVID. First of all, like what an absurd thing, what an absurd time period to look at. Uh, in a given day. So, in a yeah, given day, a given yeah. Because <laughs> that's um, what really matters, like just the individual exposure on the one single day. <laughs> second of all, the, the, number, it, the number is just made up. It's nonsense. Um, it, it doesn't account for the fact that the, the data sets he's looking at 
are just like basic surveillance data that have a lot of limitations. Um, well, and that, oh, that let's not assume report. though that people know what happened with the story of this though, because I, you know, if I'm listening right now, I might be thinking that you're talking about what Fauci said. Right. Yeah. And, and I want to just make sure that we're making it clear to people that because right, I brought up the Fauci uh, quote okay. because I wanted to be clear that like there is not good publicly available or available to journalists like David Leonhardt or whatever. I, I mean, hesitate to call him a journalist. Morning <laughs> newsletter writers like David Leonhardt. Um, like there is not good data available to really say at what rate breakthrough infections happen, at what rate they... Yeah, the, the reason I played the Fauci clip was basically so to to emphasize that we just do not know. And in fact, like it seems like there is an agency that does know, right? But they've chosen to use this other figure officially instead. And just we'll link to Justin's piece from Slate from late September about this. But just yeah, to read like piece. the beginning of that first paragraph of that piece, um, Justin, you wrote uh, on September 9th, President Joe Biden announced a new set of pandemic response policies. In the process, he said that one in 5000 vaccinated people become infected by SARS-CoV-2 each day. He was citing David Leonhardt's New York Times newsletter. Biden and Leonhardt framed the statistic as encouraging only one in 5,000. But it isn't good news or bad news. It's essentially meaningless. So right. with that all said and all that context there. <laughs> yeah. Now that we've done the stupid didactic yeah, yeah. shit. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry <laughs> we had to do that. Making a, We're making a propaganda product. So here. this is what <laughs> yeah. this is what you're talking about, Justin, which is like where this one in 5,000 number. Entertainment product. Sorry. Exactly. Yes, right. Yes. This is not medical advice. Yeah, yeah. It's not Edited. investment not legal advice. advice. Not yeah. legal advice. <laughs> We're not selling um, cryptocurrency. Exactly. So this yes. is Justin talking about where this one in 5,000 number even comes from and like why it's meaningless. Less, basically. So, so Leonhardt looked over over the summer at, um, or maybe it was early fall, at a few jurisdictions. It was like Kings County, where Seattle is, um, and like a, a couple of other state and county health departments that track breakthrough infections. And he said, okay, they're they're reporting r- roughly similar amounts. One one in five thousand vaccinated people each day are having their breakthrough infections reported. Um, therefore, that's how common they are. Therefore, we don't need to really worry about them. Um, but <laughs> and then Biden repeated it. Yeah, and Biden <laughs> repeated it like like a, a week later. Um, and they've really they've really backed themselves into a corner because. Um, waning immunity is clearly a problem. The effectiveness of vaccines does decrease over time, and getting a booster is very important, uh, especially if they're in higher risk groups. But we've been told that vaccines are so perfect, um, and we don't need to worry about breakthrough infections because they are rare and very mild when they occur. So um, that kind of puts us in a hard position. And now with uh, Omicron coming, we, we have, you know, some reports today by Moderna and Pfizer executives saying that there is, in fact, uh, some level of decrease in effectiveness, some further level of decrease in effectiveness uh, against Omicron of the vaccines. And there's very few people in the U.S. who are vaccinated have their boosters. So we're, we're dealing with like very large groups with lower than optimal uh, vaccination levels at a time when being vaccinated is is more important than ever. And also non-pharmaceutical interventions, public health measures are more important than ever and they're simply not uh, 
being used and and we're being told by these pundits that the u.s will never accept them again i think this is like the really um, the non-pharmaceutical intervention part is i think to to me like the most important because that was already the thing that you know we can we can talk about what is happening now but i think i think a lot of the groundwork for underplaying the sort of prevalence of and possibility for severity of at least some breakthrough infections like yes the vaccine is going to improve a lot of people's outcomes but it's not going to improve everyone's outcome basically and that's one of the reasons why you do a lot of other non-pharmaceutical interventions because you want to reduce the spread overall you want to reduce the chance that you know the point being even in the construction of this like one in five thousand figure and the sort of arbitrariness of it like this is not coming from anywhere statistically significant it's just like someone basically looked at like two things and was like oh this is kind of this must be nationally representative right like i looked at three counties or something yeah, yeah. he's pu- he's pulling numbers out of it out of his ass um is that the and... technical uh, term of art for <laughs> that's, it that's, that's, that's what that's what we call is that it. data set publicly available <laughs> um his, his ass <laughs> <laughs> uh and yeah and we like Regu- like infections, even among unvaccinated people, are heavily underreported, um, and probably even more so when it's vaccinated people, because the right. symptoms are are likely to be milder. And and I made I made this case in in this late article, and yeah, so I I would say if breakthrough infections were so rare, we wouldn't need to be talking about the booster, um, which, and we which wouldn't we need to, to be, uh, and we wouldn't probably be talking about breakthrough infections. Or in fact, infections, you wouldn't right. have to be answering questions as to why they're holding that data back. Right. Cause if those data are not there, right. Then all you have is yeah. David Leonhardt's one in 5,000 infections. Exactly. If those data are and not there, then yeah. there can be no counterpoint there, there, to there yeah. Biden signing it. Right. And I think, you know, with the, with the whole, like, the waning situation, right? Like the idea that we can definitively say that the reason that that like immunity is waning is just how it was always going to work without acknowledging the fact that, you know, in May, mask policies were, you know, dropped because the federal government in the United States said it's time to do it. And by 4th of July, everything will be normal again. And people changed their behavior and policies changed and, and people's you know, like comfort level with engaging in social activities that were maybe not socially distanced changed. And to just completely ignore those epidemiological factors is basically what we're being asked to do over and over and over again is like ignore the fact that like all health is social and exists socially. And yeah, and we have to and I mean, we talk about this, we've talked about this frequently on the show. But again, you know, if you want in addition to doing something like the booster campaign, like you're talking about, Justin, if you want the vaccines to you know, continue to have the whatever huge figure, 97 percent, whatever immunity that that was uh, promised in the initial trials, I don't know, maybe try go back going back to like a time of having heavy NPIs right. being right. Like layered on top of them, because if you layer like adding additional mitigation measures is also a good way to increase vaccine efficacy. Right, exactly. It certainly doesn't hurt. And the thing that just, you know, is astonishing about, I think, the the Fauci clip that you played, Artie, is that, you know, he says it very clearly. Like, yeah, we're, you know, we're collecting this data, but we haven't had time to translate it, basically. We haven't had time to, like, interpret it and figure out how we're going to talk about it. And ultimately, like, if there is breakthrough 
you know, infection data that are being collected, right? Like that does um, conflict with the narrative that, that the Biden administration is trying to push, which is all you need is like the booster and you're good to go. No masks. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about testing if you're vaccinated. Like it's fine. It's fine. He's literally saying, you know, it's just like not really convenient for us to release it right now yeah, um, for a multitude of reasons. Right. And so we're not going to particularly put a uh, pedal to the metal here because, you know, there's no pressure. Right. Because we're all caught up in this conversation about the new variant and this and that. And the breakthrough infection is just going to slip under the rug. Well, he basically says like. You don't complain when we're not in a pandemic and we're slow. Right, exactly. Right. Like, yeah. Why would you complain? Yeah, yeah. No. It's fine. Just wait for it. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so nice to have you back. We really appreciate it. And um, people go ahead and follow Justin at jfeldman underscore epi on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you again. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Justin. Good to talk to you all. Really good to talk to you all. Take care. And uh, if you'd like to listen to that episode we were talking about from Monday about the new variant, what we know and don't know, um, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and support the show. If you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll see you Tuesday in the patron feed. And as always, Medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week
And fu fun fact is that um, it was just announced that David Leonhardt is going to be joined at the New York Times morning newsletter by this uh, this guy Herman Lopez, who mm. who is no. he's he's a Vox guy. He oh, does he's very like the little Leonhardt. <laughs> <laughs> he's like Matt Iglesias' protege, right? Yeah, yeah. So he does very similar yeah. things that Leonhardt's doing, and maybe Leonhardt saw that, which is using very flawed statistical analyses to make try to argue, get people who are liberal and educated on board with reactionary politics. And Lopez does that mostly in terms of like policing mm -hmm. and criminal justice in general. Uh, and, and yeah, so maybe some of that is coming to the, the morning newsletter as well. Oh, I can't cool. wait.